0: Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. The podcast where we talk justice over coffee with a special guest. On this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Christina Huddleston, Director of European Programs at the anti-trafficking NGO Justice and Care. Christina is a bit of a superstar in the justice world, having recently won the prestigious Women of the Future award as well as the future shaper award from mary claire and her leadership of the highly acclaimed victim navigator model has brought recognition from the marsh awards for outstanding contribution to the fight against slavery as well as being nominated for this year's Thomson reuters anti-slavery awards pretty impressive stuff huh She's also featured as a subject matter expert on the issue of human trafficking in recent articles by The Guardian and The Times and appeared on ITV and Channel 4 News too. All in all, she's a real authority on this issue. And I'm lucky to call her a friend. In our conversation, Chris shares the story of what led her on this journey from growing up in post-communist Romania to fighting for the most vulnerable in our society. There's also some really interesting up-to-date data About the current state of human trafficking in the UK right now. So, grab yourself a coffee and maybe a notepad and pen so I can test your listening at the end. Enjoy. Well, it has been a long time coming. This is my chance to interview and share with our listeners the justice-seeking, ass-kicking powerhouse, that is Christina <laughs> Huddleston. Welcome, finally, welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Brain. It's an absolute pleasure, and I love I love the, the introduction. Um, I've been known as many things, uh, but by far, that is the best description.
0: <laughs> now, coffee first, like every episode.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: don't need to ask whether you're a coffee drinker that would be sheer pantomime because I of course know you love your coffee coffee is important to you so tell me why don't you tell me what 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 you drink what you go for when it's coffee time
1: Uh, always black Uh, I don't want the sugar anywhere near it or the milk um we have ever since I've met you, uh, Bryn, we've built a tradition now on our Sundays family time and special occasions. So the blue bag coffee comes out. It's it's our special occasion and family time coffee. I'm <laughs> um, sure I mentioned this to you before, but just in case, um, if you need a little sort of a refresher, I love the Panama uh, um pack, um, the, the Montana one. Um so that for me, if there are any going, or you need tasters. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, but yeah, we do um, We do keep you on, on our special occasion. And in fact, I mentioned to you earlier, we're changing our uh, our kitchen and I had to empty the cupboards. And I found three packs and I thought I only had one left. So when I found the other two, which were hidden behind, I thought, oh, my! I'm fine. I'm happy. I am exactly what I need to do with my coffee.
0: You have, I must say, you have excellent taste. That is... <laughs> That is the, one of the most expensive, but, but for a reason. It's one, for me, it's one of the most delicious coffees we offer. It is, is
1: delicious, absolutely delicious. And you know what? I used to take my coffee many, many, many years ago, three sugars and about half milk. and it was essentially a warm, sugary milk with a hint of coffee. And I realized that actually coffee in itself, if, if you just go back to basics and enjoy just its pure flavor, It is a fantastically enjoyable drink. So I go rid of the milk, go rid of the sugar. And 15 years now, it's just pure black, extra strong. I can't stand the espressos. That's one thing. If you give me an espresso, that's it. I will not sleep for like three days. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, everything else that's in the black coffee category, I'm I'm, I'm game.
0: I'm so impressed. I'm impressed that you drink it black. That always, people always score points if they drink coffee black. (laughs) And you even said espresso, whereas most people will say expresso, and I find that equally irritating. So well, well done. I can't let the Latin
1: side in my ancestors
0: down. This is true. And using that slightly tenuous link to your ancestors Mm. and your antecedents and your history. Christina, I know that you are Romanian. So why don't you, why don't we start at the beginning, which is always Mm. best. And take me back to to life in Romania, growing up in in communist then post-communist Romania. What was was that like? And just describe what life was like for you right right back then, before you came to to live in the UK.
1: Mm. Sure, so uh, usual, typical stories, born in a small town. Um, I was the first child for my parents in their second marriages. Um, and my brother followed after. And I was born around the 80s. Um, and I started primary school just as the communist re- regime was coming, coming to an end. And I remember very distinctly the times pre-90 and the times immediately after 1989. So pre-1990, it was a really um, oppressive Uh, environment I remember my parents having to hush or to whisper when they used to talk Um, they would tell us uh, things like if we hear anything in a house that you know we can't talk about it in nursery or in with friends outside Um, I remember having to wait for what felt like hours in the queue for our weekly rations of whatever the government allowed us to have so things like your rice and your breads and your meats so it wasn't a comfortable place, I suspect, for my parents. But as a kid, I only felt certain things uh, about the communist regime. Like I said, the, the, the secrecy about it, the not, not having the freedom to travel. I don't remember ever going away on holiday as a kid. Uh, in in those times, Um, and certainly the waiting to to be given your your portion of whatever you were entitled that week, and how would my mom make that last, and it wasn't until later in in life that I learned how really, really difficult that was for them. Mm. Then 1990 came, and we moved, and I remember moving, because we moved from a ground floor apartment to a top floor, like floor four, uh, apartment and that was really cool because I was a kid and it was like a balcony and we could have this amazing view so that mem- those memories stuck in my head and life was very very different the borders opened up you had a lot of influence from the western society so you had things like the pop music coming through and the different fashions really infiltrating and that that those times of 90 to about 97 there were really amazing times to be in romania everything was possible mm. And we had these like my sisters are slightly older than me but they had they had ability to travel and have weekends away and party and there was a lot of laughter a lot of socializing something that I wouldn't have been really possible beforehand But it was also around the 97 that, for me, things really changed. So I went from having this amazing childhood with just just a lot of fun um, to having a parent that fell really, really ill. So it's my mom. She went through a long time of poor health, lots of surgeries, um, in and out of hospital, that having to obviously manage the household, working three shifts. My, My dad was a fireman. Mom was a tailor by trade and she then passed away in 98. And from then on, things really changed. But it was also around that time that my my awareness began to grow on what poverty actually looks like and the struggles and having to support my dad with bills and management of finances and how, you know, how do you rob Paul to pay Peter every month and having to think about um, what could you do without what is basic, what's needed. Um, And I began to pay attention to these things. And and whilst we were comfortable enough, it wasn't, you know, by any means a place you'd want to, you could sustain, but it was sufficient, I noticed my school colleagues in my classrooms um, and where they stood on the wealth scale and also had everything they needed and, Again, this is a time where you have like the Backstreet Boys and the Britney Spears really heavily influencing that generation. So I began to notice the other side of, of the, the scale of the world, well, looking at poverty. And you know what, up until that point, I didn't see or feel a difference in wealth amongst my, my, my school colleagues. We were just so innocently growing up, having fun, building out only the groups and and having own after school uh, clubs and activities. And you, you kind of feel just a kid. But when I saw, when I had to be more of a grown up and help dad, I started noticing things very, di- very, and see things very differently. And I saw the level of poverty they were, they were living in. Um, and it really hit me, really hit me. I mean, I, I remember this particular girl and she would have been, you know, less than half of my weight back then and I remember how she would never sit around kids uh, at lunchtime because you had to have you could only have like packed lunches back then because she didn't have anything to eat she wouldn't she didn't have any socks in winter so she'd wear with these really basic shoes now this is a time when Romania I is really growing. So that level of poverty is something I would have imagined in, say, the 1930s, 1940s, not in, in the 1990s. And then my, my hearing began to, my listening skills began to really um, uh, open up and started listening to parents and their friends and whose kids were missing and whose kids were married off because they couldn't afford to feed them, they couldn't afford to keep them, especially in villages. um, Most most of us had a connection to a village because generally the older generations would settle in in a village and then their kids will look for jobs in towns and then they would marry and settle down into towns. So you'd have this connection with say, your grandparents' generation and your uncles and aunties from a slightly older generation living in these villages. And that's where you, you saw new families coming up, but they can't look after the kids. So when I used to go and visit my grandparents, for example, um, my paternal gra- grandparents, I would see, I would make friends with local kids and I would see the level of living that, the standard of living they, they, they were in. Do you know what, every time I got to Romania, even now, so this is over 20 plus years, I see the same standard of living that I used to see in my summer holidays when I was early teens. Um, unfortunately, what's changed more then, now than now than what it was back then is the want. I want the phone. I want the goods. I want the clothing. I, too, want access to social media. That want has created a demand, a demand that can be met on the current job market With the level of education or the background of the parents, very, very limited. So we then move into this world of exploitation on labor. So we talk, you know, we come into the slavery element here where job offers are plenty. You just need to open up any group on Facebook, for example, back pages of, say, Gumtree equivalent. And there will always be at any one time job offers for an enormous amount of industries, anything from your farming and agriculture to construction to your cash rich businesses in terms of like your your car washes. So you're offered these these packages of don't worry about your transport, your accommodation, we'll take care of it, you make 50 quid a day. And all of a sudden coming from a village with no, uh, or a community with no possibilities or opportunities, barely able to read, read and write because you would have left school around primary age and you're offered this amazing opportunity in the UK or Germany or Spain. So going back to my, my childhood, the innocence of life is good, everything is great, very quickly disappeared. So by the time I was 14, my, my, the level of, my, of, of awareness was very, very different uh, to where it would have been only five years earlier. Plus, I grew up in a single parent family after, after 98, at a time where social services, even now, still, you know, a lot, a long way to go, but social services wasn't an option. Child support wasn't, wasn't, there wasn't any processes in place. Parents group support groups wasn't, wasn't available. So you had this man who always, Uh, who grew up in a traditional upbringing where the, the head of the family is the man and they earn and they provide, but the wife or the mom is the cooking and the cleaning and the upbringing of the kids. Now he has to learn to be that as well. And he couldn't cope. So in my tragic case, my father turned to alcohol as a way of coping. Again, no support network whatsoever at that point. And again, hit and miss now, even 20 plus years later, And he very quickly became a full-time alcoholic uh, within two years. He was a a full-time alcoholic. So I then began seeing an even darker side of what Romanian life and upbringing could be. Um, I was lucky enough to have family that wrapped around me. So I had a sister in Germany by then who fostered me. I had a sister um, in Romania who finished the training as a prosecutor, so she was settling down into, into her, her career. So she was able to, to uh, step in and support. Uh, but that was my protection and my shield. And that's incredibly rare. It's not something that, that you have a standard. So I, I was shielded and protected to some extent from what could have been uh, or whatever ended up being was. But mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of kids, even in today, Romania, Romania today, who don't have that shield, don't have that protection, and will fall into, you know, your average trafficking age in Europe is 14. 14 years old, that's your average age, will fall into that world. um, So the development, the opportunities, possibilities, dreams, it's finished. You reach that age, they're gone. Uh, And by the time we come into the picture, it could be years later, Uh, the damage is so significant, which we can talk about that later that it takes a very long time to put that human being on, on a path of health and safety and stability. Yeah, that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I am aware of that. No, that was great. That was great. That painted a, a good picture. And some of the observations you made are, are systemic, you know, systemic failures and trends from the political system the social system yeah. the the increase in vulnerability for people in these situations and the 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 influence of uh, emerging culture western culture all of those observations mm. are uh, sophisticated and systemic and and it's interesting to distinguish whether you you can make them now retrospectively but it sounds even though at in your teenage state you were observing to some extent, yeah. these, these, these inequalities, issues of inequalities. So let's jump to the, the, the timeline a little bit. So you at some point decided to, to, to come to the, the UK. What, what motivated you to, to do that?
1: Studying and then love kept me here. <laughs> okay. I came here as a student and uh, met and fell in love with what then became my first husband. And I sort of woke up in my late 20s, having spent the best part of 10 years in the UK and realized that I made this my home and, and felt that my roots were here. Bearing in mind, I moved from Romania to Germany for a couple of years and from Germany to here. I didn't have roots, I didn't have a platform that I could say, right, this is what I'm going to start building. So, UK happened uh, organically, not through an intention or intended sort of plan. And became a British citizen, invested into the studying and, and and sort of home life and and working and growing and developing. Everything has become British for me. So here I am now, twenty two years later. I'm um, I'm still here, and this is now my home. It has been my home. Um, so very my early early part of Chris um, was very took a very different direction in 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 life and. It wasn't until my divorce in my 20s, I was 26, 27, that I felt, um, I had found out about a year or so earlier that conceiving naturally was going to be a, 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 an absolute challenge and struggle. I gave marriage a chance in a sort of 10 years of, of investing into the typical society type expectations of you when know, you meet, you you get married, you invest, you study, you save, you buy a home, try for a child. That wasn't for me. And I just wanted more. There was just something that kept me very restless. And, and that was one of the reasons why my first marriage ended up going in, into a very different direction to where we started because I, I wanted more and, and different, very, very different to where I started in, in that relationship with that individual. And just we became really incompatible because of that. And um, I woke up, uh, like I said, I was 27 years old, made the biggest decision probably of my life, which was to uh, never have my own biological children. So I spent a long time with that. So I knew that that had to be dealt with and resolved. But the second thing that I needed to find was what was my purpose? I've done what I thought should have happened and that didn't work out for me in the way that has worked out for many, many other people. So what was I meant to be doing? So I started studying law. I took on a a law degree and I thought uh, the legal and the justice field is what I want to be. What that looks like, I will find out. I will naturally get to where I need to be. But I need to start with getting onto this law degree. And I then volunteered for United Nations to be a, a volunteer for them. I then uh, registered with the British Institute of Human Rights and very slowly started to educate myself about what's out there, for, all the way from conflict areas to disasters areas to human rights areas. So I took on absolutely everything that was thrown my way from free courses that solicitors had to do and pay for I, as a student, could do it for free to uh, writing reports and drafting letters for teams in various areas across the world um, as a volunteer. And within within a matter of a couple of years, I was in my year two. I knew that I needed to focus on the hidden world of of crime. Unfortunately, and then it's, it is a, a huge, huge tragic, tragic situation. But and my sister is still prosecuting today on uh, those cases. Uh, early 2013, um, an OCG an organized crime group was uncovered in the west of Romania. It was all over the news. And their revenue a year worked out to be about a billion euros. And the level of uh, infiltration of this OCG was so significant that the eastern side of Romania, all the way from the presidential su- suite, sent undercover specialists for a whole year to to embed themselves into multiple agencies, statutory agencies, private businesses, political sectors, borders, and gather the evidence they needed. And within one day, they've made hundreds of arrests, found hundreds of thousands of cash um, in in euros in in the properties that that was of interest. And, you know you're talking about individuals that their average salary should be something like 700 euros a month and they have three to five hundred thousand euros hidden you know stashed in their homes. Uh, a number of arrests were made and what that showed was the level of uh, corruption uh, and, and fantastic that the anti-corruption team you know did did something about it but it showed how it infiltrated uh, every aspect of your world from health to your local authorities, to your border guards, to the local police. And it created an environment where for about 10 years, this OCG trafficked humans right through my hometown, which was unbelievable because I am about an hour away from the borders with Serbia. And from Serbia, you enter Macedonia, Albania, and then you can come into this side of the world in in Europe. Or you can go down Hungary, for example, and go via Hungary, Austria, Germany. So they had prime, prime location. Everybody turned a blind eye because everybody made money out of it. Um, So they were trafficking human beings, firearms and drugs at huge scales, a billion euros a month, uh, a year. So my sister had 54 files that she was responsible for, for the prosecutions. And I began learning about what that world looked like, what was open source, what I could read, what I could get involved in. I requested as a student to be able to shadow a number of, of the teams down there. I shadowed a lawyer for three weeks in Romania, who was a criminal criminal defense, so in terms of defense, criminal law, and saw a number of things that would shock most of us in how things operate or operated 10 years ago in the field of justice and whether you have enough money to secure your justice. Mm -hmm. And where do you sit on that scale of justice in terms of your contacts, connections and the wealthy carry versus the opposite. And it was a real eye opener, but I realized that at the, the, Core of all of all of this darkness was one really important element. And that was we're talking about someone's life. It's a human being. And and we we talk about all you know, it's uh, human impact and you know the poor victims and the trauma is significant and or trauma informed approaches. Let's remove all of that and just see who is at the center of this. And it's a human being. And on them, it's a dollar sign that's attached to it or a pound sign. That's it. You are worth something uh, and it can be bought and it can be sold and it can be used and abused and exploited multiple times. You are essentially recyclable as well because when you're no longer good for one thing, you'll be turned into something. As I well, say, sex workers will be moved into maybe domestic servitude or sham marriages um, because of the nationality or. Um, might be labor that you're forced or forced criminality. So you are just really just very um, usable commodity. And I couldn't come to grips with that. I, I could not, even to this day, I cannot understand how could someone tell me how much I'm worth that you can put a price tag on me. So I can buy your green for 800 quid and then you become my slave. Uh, and you will work want to make your money back, but then you're gonna make me profit. Uh, I could buy a woman um, for what 1,500 quid, and I can select what I want. So, say I want a specific age and skin color and body measurements, um, specific skill sets that may have. Um, I can buy kids, but that's not new news. I mean, we know about that. We know what's going on uh, in that world, uh, but. It's tragic because it's happening in the countries that I'm very familiar with. You know, it's Mm. it's the country I was born into. This is not, we're not talking about another continent. We're not talking about another, the other side of the globe. It's literally three hours flight away from where we are in terms of UK. So here we are, we've got a country that one of many source countries, but say Romania, we've got a country that's in the European Union and has been since 2007. It's uh, when you go there, it's about as Western as you can get. There's, you know, it, it feels great and, and young and innovative and there's fresh energy and everybody, you know, is, it has a voice and they're working through their own internal issues as a country. And then you come out of the bigger towns and cities and you go to these, these remote locations, these communities. And I'm seeing exactly what I've seen 20 plus years ago. And um, yeah, so you can buy them and that those are the ones that are targeted. And, and that's the bit that for me, I, I cannot and will never let go of as, as, a, as a passion, as a calling, how you could, you could buy, you could sell, you could use a human being. And if I can do something to stop it or minimize it, then I will spend the rest of my life doing that.
0: So for those that are hearing that and, and, and uh, somewhat incredulous to the idea of people being held in, in situations of slavery, like how you've just described, I wonder if you could just briefly explain how the control mechanisms of these organized criminal mm. trafficking gangs, that the way they operate to prevent said victim from going, yeah, I'm not okay with this. I'm disappearing the first chance mm. I get. Why don't they do that?
1: Mm. Okay, so I'm hoping your listeners have seen a 12-year slave. And if they have, I would like them to completely erase that vision of slavery from their minds, because modern day slavery is very, very different. Um, we're talking about something that I like to, to, uh, uh, to call psychological chain. So let me give you an example, a very typical uh, method of, of control. And that's usually the threat of significant violence. So if I was to say, "Brain, I know where your parents live. And I know where your address is because on your identity card, I can see that address. And you will do as you're told or I will burn the house down with your mom and dad inside it in the middle of the night and I will kill them. So if you want to prevent that, you will do as you're told. Now, you know I'm serious because the threats that I've made, there are some of those threats that I've carried out on others. So you know that it's not an empty threat. Now let's switch that and say you're a parent and we know where your daughter lives or your son lives. And they are in another country and they are with maybe your parents so say they're an older generation. And I'm going to say that I have links with the local police and I have links with um, um, local criminal networks and I will take your daughter away and she'll find herself in a brothel somewhere in Italy um, at the age of five. Uh, and you'll never see it again. And she will be used and to make money. Now, when a criminal tells you that, and I'm probably you're feeling the rage inside you as as I do too, and you're in a position where you don't understand and don't know the extent of that criminal network, your level of understanding of what serious and organized crime is is very very low. You come from a, a background where reading and writing um, are not is not something you know educating yourself on the world and the risks and how people can use other people on the good and the bad. You've only ever known your world and the desperation and need for food and to provide for your family or to have a better existence than what you, you were born into. When it comes from those backgrounds, these threats are very real. Your identity cards are, um, are removed. So you're essentially now, you have no identity, you can't prove who you are. Often you don't speak the language. I'll come to the British nationals later on in, in, the, in, in this conversation, but I'm talking about foreign nationals, which is a you know, over 100 nationalities presenting to the government's support services. It's called the National Referral Mechanism in, in the UK, presenting as victims, uh, identified victims, over 100 nationalities. Brit- British is one of them, it's in the top five, but so, Uh, uh, English is not your first language, Um, and you don't know where you are, you don't actually know where you are in the UK, Um, so you don't know how things work, what's the emergency number, where do I live, how do I describe where I'm at, how do I seek help, I don't have a mobile phone, I don't have credit on that mobile phone, I've been told that if I open my mouth and talk to anybody, bad things will happen. Actual violence is used against you. You're controlled from the moment you wake up until the moment you go back to sleep. Whether you're here for labor or for sex or other, you are under someone's uh, monitoring and observations all the time. In the sex industry, we see brothels. You don't need to have anybody in the location anymore because you've got CCTV, direct live web links sort of into the criminal's phone. So you put one foot wrong and they know. Um, in the, the labor industry, you're picked up by the same vehicle every morning and dropped off at home. And that is, you know, they'll say that that is right across the road. Um, someone is watching the property, so you can't leave the property. You can't allow anybody in the property. You're kept in a constant state of hunger and malnourishment and poor hygiene and luxury. So Those luxuries are removed. So you're really under extreme levels of control. But to the consumer, you will be a normal worker who has turned up and is washing your car on a Saturday afternoon, especially now with this weather coming up, everybody wants their cars washed, or you're having an nail done on one of the, the bars in the beauty industry on the high street. For the sex workers, as a sex worker, as a customer, you've gone on the adult services websites and you selected a service. You hope that those websites are responsible enough and ethical enough that they've done their background checks. And that lady that you're after is there You know, with consent, and it's a businesswoman who knows what she wants and has chosen that as a business. You're not going to think as a as a consumer, or is this something you know darker? Should I worry about it? And that there's very little signs as well that that a modern day slave make may give you. So you have to look at the hidden side of it. You really have to to see beyond the appearances. So. Modern day slavery is psychological chains. Uh, they can't leave because they, these threats will be carried out. The control methods are so, so structured that you have no exit, no way. Often you'll take a warrant, a door to be smashed through by the police, uh, running away, uh, escaping to actually stand the chance to get out of the grips of those, those networks.
0: Amazing. That's a really, really helpful description of that system of control. And I, I, I want to sort of gallop through your career to, to almost bring us up to today. So this interest, this natural passion for, for fighting injustice, you're studying law, you're developing your knowledge, you're volunteering with the UN, with the Human Rights Council. You go into working with Kenton Essex police. You end yeah. up working with their serious and organized crime unit. Yeah working in the anti-slavery and then you come out of that world to take on this position with justice and care 2018 mm-hmm. and you're yeah. you're the head you're the lead the director of the european operations justin care amazing ngo we work there together christian guy was interviewed on this podcast so people who are less familiar with justica please go back and listen to him working in uh, Bangladesh, th- you know, partnerships in Thailand, in India, in Romania, and across the UK. But whilst I've got you on as the European director, I'd love to hear first and foremost about the work that's going on in the UK. You've you've touched upon it already, but there is still, I think, a disconnect. We we, we do envisage situations of slavery being over there, wherever there is uh, in our mind, mm. be it Eastern Europe or. Africa or India. Yeah. It is it is still, I think, a challenge outside of our world to, to mm. really see that in our communities, see it in the UK and just quite how prevalent it is here. One of the studies uh, that Justice and Care was involved in uh, two years ago, called It Still Happens Here, co-authored with uh, the Centre for Social Justice, calculated that hundred thousand plus people uh, are believed to be living in situations of slavery in the UK. you've just released a, another re- report uh, sort of updating us two years later mm-hmm. on on the situation what's what's the latest findings? If you tell me a little bit about that and then perhaps we could you could talk me through the victim Navigator uh, program.
1: Yeah sure. Um, so we with ju- within just care one of our greatest strengths is how we, utilize and translate and use what we learn frontline, both within our own work and our partners and and, um, other stakeholders. We translate that into um, policy change um, at scale, that systemic change. It's it's fine to see the the needs and the gaps, but what do we do about them and how do we turn that change for for long-term sustainable change? So the, it still happens here. Was was a really um, great timing report because the team from within justice and Care, from the policy side, and, and the center for social CSJ, center for social justice team, mapped a number of areas within within uh, UK, and we had this, this amazing uh, opportunity to map what we thought was the real prevalence of of human trafficking in modern slavery. And that sits at over a hundred thousand victims. And what we're seeing in the the official numbers, official statistics, is that we're barely identifying ten percent of that figure. So one in ten victims we're identifying. So we had to learn. We had to look at why is that? Why are we only identifying one in ten? And there are a number of areas that we we monitored and we mapped and we. Analyzed over the last two years, um, that was discussed in, in this most recent uh, report. And one of them, one of this area is that uh, ability to identify victims. And so the level of awareness that a frontline professional requires is, is, is significant. But not only identify the victims, it's actually getting the victims to engage with the process, the, the criminal justice process, the recovery process. And that particular bridge was and remains really um, really weak in, in, in nationally. So one of the findings from, from the second report is that, that early engagement with a victim and creating a strong uh, bridge for the victim to walk, walk over into the criminal justice process is it's key, it's vital to the success of not only the victims being identified, but also the criminals being identified and dealt with, according to the law, dealt with being given what they truly deserve. The other element that we found in terms of why only one in 10 victims are identified is the different support services available for victims and the thresholds they have to go through. So things like, I make a reference to the National Referral Mechanism, that is such a unique, fantastic on one hand, but a lot left to desire and, and want for on another, a unique support service for victims of human trafficking, unique to the most countries in Europe. But the thresholds to meet a positive, conclusive decision that you are actually a victim is really high. And the time frame to reach that is really high. Until you reach that positive, Conclusive decision, a lot of the services are restricted to you as a victim. So you will fall in the gaps. And if we're talking about the average is 500 days to wait for that decision to take place. So over a year, a year and a half, it's a long time for an individual to go through what should be their recovery journey, is the criminal justice process an average of 12 to 18 months to reach a trial stage and have limited resources. And if you are a uh, non-European, the immigration status is also hanging over you. So we're looking at what would be needed for uh, as a resource pack to be deployed upon identifying a victim that secures that engagement with all of the processes required. The other area that we found was the priorities on from the law enforcement side, very mixed and patchy responses when it comes to investing in this crime type. So a united approach and a multi-agency approach is, is absolutely key. You need all the partners. This is a serious and organized crime and they work in partnership. They need the financial supporters or money laundering. They need the transports or facilitators. They need their the addresses and locations. They need the landlords, uh, accountancy. Um, the, your recruiters, so your kind of runners on the ground. So you've got these uh, criminal networks who work in partnership with each other, and then switch over to our side, and we have a very mixed and often very poor response to, to, to working together as a, as a multi agency. So, where are our specialist resources in terms of your financial investigators, your cyber support online? digital forensics, cross-border and international uh, resources and, and knowledge and tools. Uh, where is the actual investment from the force in terms of the investigative teams? You know, should they sit at a local division or move it up to a more specialist teams? Again, those who are not in this field, you know, there are le- various levels of, of specialisms within, within a law enforcement um, or police force, law enforcement agency. So what we're seeing is that if there isn't a priority set by the chief constables, it's highly unlikely that the force will then address this and approach this crime type in in the way that it needs to be approached. So criminals are falling off the radar, falling through the gaps and gets away with it. Uh, The other side that we found is is the the judicial process, the waiting times in courts and the the prosecution side, the sentencing part of it. Even if we successfully get a job over the line, they said that the time away that they are given is is absurd. It really is uh, absurd. You know, average is four to six years, out in half the time. Most commonly, most often, we see months, a matter of months, a month of, mm. you know, a matter of two years, uh, sentencing again out in half the time on on good behavior. So there is no deterrent. So there are really key strategic areas that we really need to invest as a society as a cohort of professionals as statutory agencies private sector investment uh, into these areas to to target it and to tackle this this uh, criminality in in, at the level and the standard that it needs to
0: you mentioned sentencing and I follow a number of uh, meet social media profiles. One of the ones I follow is is the GLAA, which stands for the Gang Master and Labour Abuse Authority, and they they will they'll share their recent cases, particularly mm-hmm. if it's a, a victory. And it was interesting they shared a, a story. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, just a few months ago, of a prosecution, a chap was found guilty. The offender was found guilty at court, prosecuted for him on a modern slavery offence. Him and his father's his father now deceased, but this is a guy called Peter Swales Jr. Yeah. And he'd uh, uh, had they got a caravan site in Cumbria in the north, and they've had a man discovered working for them on their caravan site for for best part of 40 years, 4 0, uh, living in situations of squalor. At the time of, of the arrest of this operation or the, the police intervention, he was living in a, in a sort of six foot by three foot shed and uh, and was being paid as little as 10 pounds a day clearly a victim of of exploitation and th- at court this this peter swales character was found guilty and given a nine month suspended sentence so he's not seen the inside of a jail cell and, and even if he was he's looking at nine months which has been suspended for 18 so and this is a positive prosecution and you've got to wonder If that's the end result, now I know that's an exceptionally poor piece of sentencing and there are better results out there and we are seeing encouraging signs in in CPS, in prosecution, in in, in the way the courts are uh, growing in their knowledge of the Modern Slavery Act and and its prosecution, the extent to which the Modern Slavery Act has increased its sentencing guidelines and and how long we can sentence people for. There there have been great signs of positive, and I don't want to dwell on the negative. But I'm glad you raised it, because um, in reality, there's there's a long, long Mm. way to go. And I also wanted to pick up what you mentioned. Uh, So regarding somebody that has been identified as a, a victim and is willing to come into the, the national go through the national referral mechanism to engage with the authorities. Some so many of them, so many people in this situation won't for, for many legitimate good reasons why they fear engaging with the police, with the state, with the authorities. They prefer not to engage and to disappear however quickly they can and obviously in many cases vulnerable to being re-trafficked and re-exploited. But but those that do bravely engage thanks to the work of the victim navigator program uh, that you can tell me about uh, after my ramble. Five hundred days on average is what you said. So five hundred days on average before before their case may or may not uh, be be brought to trial. I, I suspect not. But do do they have the ability to work during that period? So if they're not British national, do they have access to be self sustaining, support themselves in in a, in employment? No. No,
1: no. So five hundred days is what it, it's the average time for the competent authority who re- receives the referrals for the NRM service, National Referral Mechanism, to make a decision. It's an average of about similar time, but about 18 months to bring a court, a case to court if successful in, in the charging stage and, 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 and securing a court date, very mind COVID. You know, we're looking at dates now for our trials for 2024, you know, because of, of the backlog. Um, Now, in terms of their entitlements, you can't, you can't work, um, you can't volunteer. Um, So you are reliant on a few pounds a week, and it really is a few pounds a week, support service, financial support service. You are given access to, obviously, accommodation and, and some basic needs but you are having to wait to be told whether someone believes you on whether you're a victim or not of a crime that was done against you. In the meantime, obviously, the police carries on and and, and builds builds their own sort of case files and and investigations. But this is where the trauma, uh, and I will bring the victim navigator into this, the traumas that an individual might present with often their credibility is questioned, their ability to recollect certain dates, events, descriptions, uh, names, and so on is is really patchy. So that was one of the things why we were seeing very few cases going through past CPS, approving the charges, because if the witness is not credible or the evidence is not as, you can't find alternative evidence, to, to what the victim might be telling you or actually confirm the, the, the statements given by, by the, the victim and, and back them up with evidence. Often those cases will go nowhere. They'll be closed down. Um, but uh, moving be- between, between the victim's needs and, and the, the criminal justice process, back in 2017, I met Christian and I was still working for Essex Police and Kent Police. And my my role was to, to, to build really strong responses in terms of human trafficking and, and, and modern day slavery. One of the things that I, I noticed uh, very quickly was the lack of tailored support for these victims. So we had victims presenting with a significant sexual violence being carried out against them, mental health, physical health, pregnancies. We had domestic violence in the background, poverty, child abuse. Substance uh, abuse or, or addiction to controlled substances, no education, um, no ability to sustain themselves financially, real, real vulnerable sort of individuals, and often we had two, three, or more of these factors in one case, in one human being. So the the tailored support was had to literally be that tailored because you couldn't just send that individual to sexual services or domestic violence or you know, child abuse things. you couldn't. You needed someone that was able to navigate all the different layers of, of those traumas and the needs and then bring to that individual uh, the pathways to the right services and then walk, walk through the, that journey with them. And criminal justice was one of, one of the, the services How can we stop this crime if we firstly don't capture the best that we can out of our our victims? How do we get from a victim to a witness and from a witness to a survivor? The witness part is often not paid attention to enough. And that is because there is a high level of disengagement. But if we don't have the best that we can um, secure out of our victims, in order to stop those criminals from continuing with the criminal business model and to prevent others from being targeted, then this crime will just continue. So, Met Christian, there was coping and mapping UK. He spoke to a number of, of law enforcement leads and everyone was saying the same. We need a tailored, tailored support for, for victims of this particular crime time because of the, the comprehensive level of trauma they bring with them. So we worked for the best part of one year to build the concept of the victim navigator. And these navigators do exactly just that. They will navigate what's needed. They will wrap around that individual. They will walk that journey from the very first hour to year five if it's needed. They will build those bridges. And what we've noticed is that without a navigator, the national average victim engagement with the criminal justice process sits around 33% of all the the, uh, investigations, with a victim navigator sits at 90%. So nine in 10 victims will support that criminal justice process. Uh, You know, we've had some amazing, amazing results, but there's nothing more valuable than understanding and having the support of those who have gone through that crime Um, in learning about uh, the, what they've suffered and understanding what, what that individual needs and then helping them get that, but also in understanding the criminal mind and the, the shortcuts they are taking. How do they avoid the wrath of the law? How do they clean the money? How do they target the commodity? And the, the best source of intelligence is, is a victim of that crime, who's seen it with mm-hmm. their own eyes, who felt it with their own, their own skin
0: so i've read the executive summary um of of the recent report and uh the importance that has been leveraged on the victim not just uh, from a the, the moral duty we have to support them but actually from a criminal uh, justice point of view you're unlocking this incredibly vital evidence and intelligence in order to to go after these uh offenders these organized criminal Gangs to take them down. If we don't have this information coming, if there's no trust, if there's no relationship with the victim, it makes our job in doing so so much harder. And and there's an economic argument, and like all of these things. Sometimes you can't reach people uh, purely on in regards to their morals or, or, or their compassion, but you might be able to get in traction when you point out the economic argument. I think the first report talks about thirty-two plus uh, million is it million pounds a year or? or so some, some extraordinary figure cost of, 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 of dealing with the
1: fraud. Yeah. Yeah. The way that the state is defrauded as well. So money that, you know, so tax avoidance and money laundering, um, these, these, these are millions of, of pounds that yeah. should go back and would go back into our British communities, you know, our, our, our most at need, whether we're looking at children who, don't have anything to eat, to um, families at risk um, or, or living below poverty level, um, or reinvesting this money back into our healthcare system or our social care system. Um, so these criminals are defrauding the state. Um, they're cleaning the money and then reinvesting dirty, you know, what was essentially dirty money into, into our communities. They are fooling the consumers um in terms of the services they, they provide and how how ethical they are um and i won't even start on the supply chain at the global side of businesses and where where the products we use um, where that that comes from um i'm just going to focus on, on the uk side um and then you have uh our reliance on the one or two individuals that we successfully get out of a, a really bad situation, we they could help us bring down a, a whole criminal network and lock them up, lock these individuals up. And they are the ones who are not getting the right support, who are not getting the backup of the government or the communities, um, the investment that they need. Um so the navigators and and like like sort of minded programs and and stakeholders are are doing just that. We do try and advocate and push through for a better victim support that not only services the needs of the victim of the crime, because that's what they are, they're a victim of a crime uh, against a human being, as well as it it services the needs of the justice system and and getting away the, the rot, that these criminals are in our communities, getting them out and, and putting them behind behind bars where where they should be.
0: I know the, the victim navigator program has grown exponentially in the short time since I was involved in, uh, and and uh, and no longer am working with Justin, I know you guys have, you know, extrapolated what you're you're doing and, and hopefully that it will become a a nationally adopted model. Because in the absence of this individual, this advocate to to support the victim and, and prioritize their needs, you're left with somebody that that is unsupported, without the the capacity to earn their own living, to be self-sustaining. Very much labeled a victim in their identity. In, in the, you know you have to sit with that category, that 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 label, because until your case is heard, you've got no freedom of movement. As such, yeah. you know, no freedom of identity, no freedom to 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 develop your your career or or move beyond yeah. this. Whilst that is ongoing, you're a victim. So the having suffered all manner of abuse that led to the, the the position that you're in now. So the 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 psychological position that they're left in is extraordinary. Harring, to expect yeah. anybody to get to a point of giving evidence against their trafficker without that support is an extraordinary ask. Having yeah. left them wallowing in obscurity for eighteen months post uh, rescue, in inverted commas, I want to pull you finally, because uh, I, I know we're running out of time, from the UK across the U- Ukraine, because it would be mad not to draw some light reference to it and and connect. What's happening uh, in the Ukraine with the not just the internally dispersed uh, population, but you know, latest figures suggest as many as yes. three and a half million people have, have, have left the Ukraine carrying whatever they can get into a rucksack mainly me- uh, women and children. Men are expected, or in, in most cases, without choice, you know, forced to remain to, to fight for their country. So you're looking at Elderly people, women and children, people that exist in the most vulnerable categories, leaving with whatever they can carry in, in, a, in, a, in a European war zone, right into the hands of people, hopefully, uh, that are there to help. But in some cases, you talk about these, you mentioned right at the start of our conversation, Chris, a, a gang, we we're talking about a billion pounds a, a year. That's one gang, you know, there are multiple. So so they're extremely vulnerable at this at this stage uh, to being uh, exploited and trafficked and and disappeared so how how do we respond to that how do we how do we try our best to prevent that from taking place what's the challenge
1: yeah oh just the situation the conflict and really it's a war it's not just a conflict it is just heartbreaking I have been monitoring the news both in my professional and personal sort of sides of, of my life um, and I I'm, I'm, I'm with Ukraine um, and you know you always look at what more could we do both now immediately and and that longer term so one of the things that we identified uh, in, in in trying to get our heads around what what's going on what roles do we have to play or from a just-in-care perspective, but also from an individual perspective, is understanding that there are millions or at least hundreds of thousands of first-time individuals fleeing a country because of a war. So these are your, this is our world now. Uh, what, what we are faced with is a cohort of individuals who left their home with very, very few belongings, very rarely, if any at all, cash reserves, identity documents. And they are again, they've left the country because of conflict, entered another country and they are in temporary situations where there's accommodation, safety, protection, all of that, outside. So they are at the moment targets because the job offers and the offers of long-term support and financial stability is very much a need. It's a significant need. Um, you may or may not have someone left behind who's fighting. If you don't, you now need to consider having to start again and that whatever provisions we will offer as, as, as NGOs or as, as organizations will be temporary. You know, we, we cannot be there two years later, three years later. So we're looking at a very vulnerable uh, um, cohort of individuals And we are hearing anecdotal chatter from the crossings, but one of the things that we wanted to be very clear about is how do we equip uh, those individuals with the knowledge? What is the danger? Uh, What are the indicators? What could you be seeing or noticing or feeling or sensing that is not quite right? And how do we help you follow those instincts that if it's too good to be true, if it doesn't feel right, don't do it, don't say yes, don't get in a minibus. How do we upskill professionals in identifying potential indicators? How do we upskill individuals who are receiving the Ukrainian nationals on looking at vulnerabilities and, and helping them understand what support services are out there? And, and, and on the other side, how do we equip the Ukrainian nationals in picking up on indicators of exploitation in someone's home, say, their that, that intentions were not as genuine or as, mm-hmm clean as, as they appear to. That's the situation we're battling now with the British homes being opened. You know, how do we safely do that? How can we vet every single individual coming into the country as well as those receiving those individuals? How do we uh, do those regular home visits, equipping those individuals? So awareness raising was a big, big uh, uh, need. And that's something that we, alongside a number of other NGOs, responded very quickly. In, in making sure that we equip the right people through geolocations, targeted, targeted uh, messaging and public alerts, where we equipped both sides. But we are seeing, and certainly a few arrests have been made uh, and have been reported in the media. We are seeing where there's tragedy, there's also opportunity. And as a criminal, you will look for opportunities. And we're seeing uh, offers, job offers that will take you straight to Italy As soon as you enter Romania, you get literally land one foot into the Romanian territory. The job offer and accommodation is is made available. You get onto that minibus and you go straight through Romania. So you're just using Romania as a transit and you are now untraceable. There's no tracking. No one knows that you even entered the country. There are no follow ups of where you ended up in. And again, I go back to the indicators I mentioned earlier language barrier, mobile phones, lack of money, lack of understanding where you are, and knowing how to get help if you need it, uh, exiting an exploitation. Um, you are at the mercy of, of these individuals. So are they genuine job offers? Will you reach a safe place? These are questions that it's way too early to find out, but we know that they're operating. Um, so it's it's, it's, a, it's a sensitive and fragile time at the moment, putting aside the conflict, putting aside the, the impact of the war and the displacement at such a large scale, the trafficking of these individuals, especially as so I mentioned first time uh, first time fleeing, you have refugees who are used to and have gone through a process, say perhaps from Syria, they've ended up in the Ukraine. They, they, they would have learned and picked up on the, the dangers, the darkness, the blind spots. So they'll have some awareness of what's needed the level of preparation you might need to to go through you have those who would have naturally planned for in case this happens what is our backup plan where do we go what's our destination what are our reserves um i've had these conversations with my family what would we do what's our emergency response um so you know, they would be prepared, they would have a support network, they would have contacts or have destinations or have planned routes um, and how to get out of Ukraine. But those who don't um, are our, our cohort of interest. And that's the cohort of individuals we want to focus on. Um, and, and we're doing just this week, we're doing a rapid assessment of what more we could do uh, beyond awareness raising and upskilling of professionals to, to support with the incoming threat and the new trends of exploitation that this war has created.
0: Well, please, please do let us know if there's anything we can do at Bluebird to support you. I, I'm like probably everybody at the moment watching the evening news, just feeling so impotent to really bringing about a, a positive change, bringing bringing support to this this torrid situation. So, um, very
1: yeah. I mean, United United Nations um, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs short for unoch they They come out with the, every three to five days report and with everything that's going on, everything from health to protection to uh, security. Um, that's a really good source, safe source of information to follow. And, and it's all fed from the front line. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We will keep you... Of course, we will keep you updated and we'll bring you into into our world in regards to this. But it's difficult because our role will be firmly set in the prevention of of this particular crime type whilst working with our humanitarian aid partners and and stakeholders and working very closely with the statutory agencies because everything we do must translate into a long-term sustainable change and not just quick fixes. So... Yeah, uh, we're we're also learning what our role is in Mm. in this particular uh, conflict. Mm.
0: We always try and end with a focus on on something hopeful. And I I just wonder actually if you had any stories before we started recording. You you were mentioning uh, some of the processes, some of the upcoming trials and trials that you've you've you and your team have been attending over the last twelve months. I wonder if you've got any sort of stories that are closer to completion from somebody that Mm -hmm. was identified and is now empowered
1: i do and i have i have a particular case we have a particular case this is a a lady who uh, fell in love with an individual seven years ago this individual deceived her like like most of the the grooming tactics and then the the recruitment tactics deceived them brought her over to to the UK, forced her into sex working for four years. She escapes, comes to the attention of the the authorities, comes to our attention. We begin our support with this individual and it's taken three years to bring that case successfully to a guilty verdict and a really significant sentencing. And the last, piece of this journey is reuniting her with her daughter who she hasn't seen or hugged or uh, spent any time for the last seven years the daughter was seven when she last saw her mom so apart from the phone calls and the video calls she hasn't been able to be with her daughter and, and, and hug her daughter and we are a matter of, of days away from reuniting the daughter with her mom in the UK so we're bringing a daughter of a, and reuniting a mom with her mom. And one of the things that I've I've learned is that there is always hope that the darkness parts of our world and and the the difficult traumatic times that we are going through for whatever reason, our life plan takes us through them. There is always light at the other side, always with the right people and the right turnings in, in in your life plan, in your journey. The light comes through again. So for a human being that she spent seven years of her life battling what she felt was the right thing to do, getting justice and 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 making sure that these individuals will never harm another human being again, as well as personal battles as a mom, as a provider, as a protector, and not being able to be there for a daughter, and to come through and come through with a strong positive attitude towards life towards herself towards those around her and to be days away from hugging a daughter again for the first time gives me hope if if this is all i ever achieve in my life uh, for this then i will keep doing what i'm doing
0: amazing a great place to end i want to say thanks chris thanks for talking to us today but also for the work you're doing it, it it's i think a, a little bit about it as if, if I was going in for surgery, I would want my surgeon to know exactly what they were doing, right, and, and, <laughs> and as the an next police officer, I sadly have, have seen him. In- thought you were going to say I would want the surgeon to be you. <laughs> <laughs> that would be bizarre. Actually, in that case, I, I definitely would not, <laughs> but, but if I was uh, in this situation, uh, I would want someone like you that has this not just the skills but the knowledge and the passion of what it takes is when you meet hurdle after hurdle and barrier and and you battle on you fight on and uh and we are making progress and it is because of, of people like yes. you chris so so keep it up uh, we absolutely are supporting you and we're grateful for all you do And we just want to help. (laughs) We just want to bless you. So any which way we can, let us know. But God bless. Keep up the the great work. And thank you so much for for sharing on the podcast with us today. I always come away from talking to Chris fired up and keen to get stuck into the fight. It's really helpful to hear her up-to-date picture of life on the front lines of this particular war on injustice, isn't it? Chris made reference to a number of facts and stats in our conversation. Did you get some of them down? There were a number that stood out to me. One of which was the fact that, on average, a survivor of human trafficking in the UK spends, how many? 500 days waiting for a decision as to whether they'll be granted leave to remain in this country and receive the accompanying state support in which period they are unable to move on with their lives, get a job, pay tax, and contribute to society. I was also shocked to learn that the average sentence for a modern slavery prosecution in this country is between just four and six years, not including the time subtracted for good behavior or the 50% sentence reduction for pleading guilty. What sort of a deterrent is that? Perhaps most appallingly, Chris shared that the average age of a victim of human trafficking in Europe is only 14. On that point, I would recommend you go and check out the recent BBC documentary which looks at the sexual exploitation of teenagers in Romania. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, how about a positive fact to end on? Wasn't it encouraging to hear the difference in the victim engagement levels between those who do and don't have the support of a victim navigator. According to the data Chris shared, only 33% of identified victims of human trafficking in this country choose to engage with the police and the national referral mechanism. But 90% of victims who have the support of a victim navigator will engage. And we know how key that engagement is if we want to see these organized criminal networks taken out powerful evidence of the effectiveness of this model and further cause for the consideration of a national and international rollout. If you want to find out more about the work of Justice and Care, please visit them at their website www.justiceandcare.org. As ever, this podcast is produced by Blue Bear Coffee Co. If you love coffee and have a heart for justice, come and check us out at Blue Bear Coffee Thank you so much for listening. Speak soon. Peace.